Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Economic gloom or prelude of economic boom? On Tuesday, China's National Bureau of Statistics released key data on China's economic performance in July. Main indices, including Consumer Price Index, or CPI, China's Imports and Exports, Investment in Fixed Assets, and Industrial Production, see moderate growth. Fu Linghui, spokesperson of the National Bureau of Statistics and Director General of its Department of Comprehensive Statistics, explained that monthly slowdown in China's economic growth is a normal fluctuation. Nevertheless, Western media declare that China's July data broadly missed expectations. Can we take an unbiased look at China's economic performance? What are the internal and external factors that affect China's economy? What non-economic barriers are hampering China's growth? Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. I'm pleased to be joined from Nevada, the U.S., by William Lee, chief economist at non-profit think tank Milken Institute, from Darwin, Australia, by financial market analyst Daryl Guppy, and from New York by James Heimowitz, Honorary Chairman of the China Institute in America, the oldest non-profit cultural organization in the U.S. that focuses exclusively on China. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. So we're going to talk about the state of the Chinese uh, economy or the bill of health. And, uh, you know, normally we talk about three pillars, consumption, investment and trade. Let's take... A look at the overall picture, first of all, after reading the numbers. Mr. Lee, let me go to you. What is your general gauge of the state of affairs of the Chinese economy? Well, when China lifted the COVID restrictions, we all had the hope that China would follow the same profile as every other country, which is a very strong rebound uh, with consumption and, and investment. Um, and China did exactly that. Uh, unfortunately, when the second quarter came around, the momentum seemed to have disappeared. Uh, and, and so that's the latest data are also showing that the consumption isn't there as strongly as we had thought. Uh, and also investment wasn't there. The private sector seemed to be hesitant because it seemed to lack confidence. Uh, and, and I think one of the things that we in the West are worried about is, is what is it about China that is so different that it has a very different recovery profile than the rest of the countries of the world? Darrell. I think that reflects a lot of wishful thinking on behalf of the West and a lack of understanding of the drivers in the Chinese economy and the way the structure of the Chinese economy is adjusting in a post-COVID period. The assumption is, often by Western analysts, that China today is the same as it was pre-COVID. And that's not the case. There was a whole lot of development that took place during the COVID period, particularly moving down the track of the digital economy. So we expected in the West that China would recover from COVID and drag the rest of the world out of its disaster in the same way as China did in 2008. Those expectations were incorrect at the very basis. So this disappointment that's around the current figures is more a reflection of an inability of the West to understand China's economic development rather than a, a, a factor specific to China. Well, I'd love to hear more about that. But James, tell us your general impression from the numbers we're seeing. You know, it's very interesting. I have to put up one thing first. And that is we talked about, you know, how China being different, China being different. But 
The first thing that I would say is, you know, as I said before, I've been going to China for nearly 50 years. And the biggest difference that I see is how much China is actually increasingly just like the rest of the world and very much a part of the global community. So when we talk about um, emerging from COVID, you know, China faced very much the same kinds of challenges. Of course, every country addressed COVID very differently and China addressed it in a unique way. But, you know, the reintegration into the global economy and the way that we're trying to recover actually mirrors a lot of what we're seeing in other places across the globe. So again, it's more like how China is actually more similar to the rest of the globe rather than different from it. Basically, um, and in many ways, I would agree with you in the sense that the rest of the global economy is slowing down post-COVID. We're still recovering and battling with supply lines and all the rest of it. And yet we have this expectation that suddenly China should burst out of the blocks. I would suggest that those expectations are ill-founded. All right, let's let's break down the numbers. Yeah, let, let's break I down the numbers a little bit. Yeah, 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 James, uh, you can pick that up uh, after uh, I make a small point. For instance, let's take a look at the consumption. Uh, a lot of the worries has been the weak consumption or the weak demand. And yet, if you break that down, there are nuances. For instance, if you look at the consumption of retail sales, it went up. Uh, in July, it went up by a mild 2.5% year on year, actually down by 0.06% months on months. And yet the retail sales of services went up by 20% year on year in the first seven months. Mr. Lee, what do you make of this huge discrepancy between the retail of goods, of physical goods, and the services and the overall result we're seeing in terms of demand? Well, I'm glad you pointed that out because that's a similar pattern that we see in the, every other country in the world where after the goods consumption was satiated, people started to do services. And China and everyone else is really engaging in travel, uh, the travel, it's, uh, travel services more than anything else. Uh, and and I, that's a normal recovery. It's the amount and strength of that momentum that we are concerned about because as an economist, there are two drivers for consumption, wealth and income. And when the property market is in disarray and 80% of household wealth is in the property market, that's a problem. Uh, and people are, are nervous that their wealth isn't the way they thought it would be. Also income. When family unemployment is a concern that your youth unemployment rate is over 20%, if my family members, if my children are not able to find jobs, even though they've got some of the best universities in the world, I am not going to consume as much as I did before because my family income is limited. So these are the two main drivers for consumption, which is true for every country in the world. And this is a universal model that has been well accepted and proven. And these two factors in China are really, I think, one of the main restraints on consumption overall. Daryl, how do you look at the mixed numbers in terms of consumption? And it is true what uh, Mr. Lee just t talked about, the kind of worry of uh, many Chinese households about the future. Uh, they are less willing to spend. And what are the factors that can account for that? I quite agree with Mr. Lee's analysis. I think one of the important differences is if we take, for instance, let's call them a typical Chinese family versus a typical American family, the American family in that situation is more likely to reach for a line of credit via a credit card or other credit facilities to be able to fund the existing consumption and future consumption. That 
impetus doesn't exist to the same extent in China. People tend to, hoard is the wrong word, to preserve wealth and to preserve income are much more cautious in that. And that reflects in a decline in consumption levels. That's certainly correct. And I think that this is showing up in the granular detail of where consumption is taking place. And we must remember, of course, that household saving rates have always been much higher in China than they have in the United States. And one of the challenges of the dual circulation economy is to increase consumer spending, irrespective of an event like COVID. James, do you see the potential negative impact of uh, the lack of trust uh, ostensibly among a lot of Chinese people that uh, maybe their future is not going to be so bright as they witnessed over the past 40 years, so they're spending less. And by the way, maybe their income is also increasing at a lower speed, even stagnating. It's interesting you use the word trust, and I would like to get back to that a little bit. I think the trust issue actually is more between China and the U.S., the two words that I would use that we're talking about here, the most two relevant words, I think, are perception and confidence. What is the Chinese consumer's perception of what's happening? How does that correspond to their confidence in their spending habits? And I think actually the disconnect that we see and the one that's going to be interesting to watch is how does the Chinese consumer feel about the initiatives that have been taken first by the Politburo and then that are going to be implemented by the various different agencies and how will their confidence be? And, and is the reading that the Western markets and market sayers are talking about actually in line with what the Chinese domestic consumer confidence levels are? So the Chinese government is definitely trying to show up uh, consumption. Uh, a whole host of uh, measures were rolled out earlier just weeks ago to boost consumption. Mr. Lee, how do you foresee these measures playing out in the near future? I think they're absolutely necessary and they're exactly the right things to do. And to bolster confidence in the private sector, to try to inspire the private sector that the Chinese economy is fundamentally strong and its future is bright, and that the private sector should be investing. Those are the themes that are being put out there. What I think has to be done is to back up the themes with some specific actions. Um, one of the concerns, for example, that uh, I would imagine a Chinese family has is that the strongest job growing engine in China was the tech sector and the, and the telecom internet sector. Unfortunately, the policies in the last two years that put in question the role of large companies like uh, Tencent, Alibaba, and, and others uh, in the Chinese economy, uh, and maybe the flip-flop in the kind of pronouncements that have gone on in the last two years, uh, has made people more concerned that maybe the private sector's role in the Chinese economy is not as strong as it was before or will not be as strong as it was before. And I think the policy has to now reassure the public that, in fact, hmm. the strongest job building engine in the Chinese economy, which are the smaller businesses in the private sector, are absolutely necessary and the government will do whatever it can to strengthen those components of those yeah. companies. That's really what's needed to reassure households that job security is there. Yeah, because the greater amount of jobs are, are happening in the private sector. I think the messages has always been there, but it has again be re-emphasized in on national television that message is loud and clear that the private sector and the joint ventures uh, by foreign investors are, are extremely important for, for the we Chinese. We in the West economy. need that same reassurance. 
Yes, absolutely. Let's hope that um, you know more will translate into reality. Let's talk about trade a little bit because trade has always been very important for China. But uh, total trade of China's imports and exports of goods declined by 8.3 percent year on year in July. More specifically, exports decreased by 9 percent, imports fell by almost 7 percent. I want to ask James. What do you think account for the specifically the very sharp decreases in this sector? Is it that China is not producing the right thing, or the worlds are not buying as much? What happened? I think we have to separate two things. One is the short term, and one is the longer term. Actually, the blips up and down in the short term to me are less concerning than the overall trends in what I call sort of the economic eco structures of who China deals with, and we can see this. You know, with emphasis coming from the Chinese government on looking towards neighbors in ASEAN and Southeast Asia, towards looking towards the Middle East. Conversely, we can see how you know trading partners, namely Europe and the United States, particularly the United States, are drifting apart, and we see spheres of influence evolving in parallel rather than becoming more integrated. And for me, this is what we really need to watch to understand. How is this going to evolve? Are we really going to have two separate ecosystems, or are we going to go on the trajectory that we had before, which talked about really a, a vibrant and lively globalization and integration of needs and free flow of goods and services? And this is really a, a big question. I, I, I think. think that is more a reaction because of the kind of.、Uh, Trade war, for instance, or anti-globalization practices and policy, that China had to focus more on the countries where it can trade more. For instance, trade with、uh, Belt and Road countries、uh, went up from one trillion U.S. dollars ten years ago to two trillions now. So definitely, China's trade with those countries are increasing. It's unfortunate if trade with the G7 or more developed countries are not growing as fast. Darrow, what is your take? Well, certainly we need to remember that the the export decline reflects a global decline in demand. It's not something that China generates by itself. So, demand in Western societies, in Western economies, in Europe and America, has declined. Some of it's been、uh, substituted in supply lines. That's certainly true. But overall, we've seen a, re- a retreat. But as you've pointed out. There is a reorientation of the economy in terms of export markets towards what you would call the global south. That includes Belt and Road Initiative countries. It includes countries involved in RCEP within the BRICS structure and within the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. These are developing markets where future demand is going to grow at a faster rate than the mature, one might always almost say, pensioned off. Economies of Europe and America, where the ability, the the margin for growth is relatively small compared to the margins of growth in the global south. So there's reorientation taking place. We can't expect to see steady, continuous growth running at six, seven, eight percent as it has in the past. It's inevitable. The China's growth trajectory will move back to that of the more established economies, sitting at around the four to five percent, perhaps even lower. The key factor is how do you increase productivity in that environment, and that's what takes you out of the middle-income trap. And part of what、okay. we're seeing is that move to overcome that middle-income trap problem. 
Can I add one more thing? Absolutely, yeah, Mr. I I broadly agree with what both James and Daryl just said, that the structure and patterns of trade are shifting in a post-COVID environment and in a sort of globalization mark, too, that is a reshaping of globalization because the world has decided to regionalize their supply chains and not depend so much on China as a sole source of, of manufactured goods. But I think the overall decline in China's exports is really due to a very simple thing, which is that the Europe, United Kingdom and United States are fighting inflation and we're trying to slow our economies down in our fight against inflation. So we are purposely growing our economies slower so that we can tame inflation. And that, of course, has a consequence on the amount of exports that China is able to ship out. Mm. On top of that, uh, the pattern of, of consumption in all of these economies have shifted more towards services, which is not a lot of what China produces. So I think those are the first order short term impact on what China has experienced. Mm. But I think the longer term pattern of trade and type of trade and location of trade is, is because of what the uh, James and Darrell both mentioned. It is because globalization is reshaping itself to multiple supply chains and regional trade. Once again, the number of July was particularly steep. Um, what could possibly explain that? Is it just a normal short-term fluctuation or is that trend going to continue, Daryl and then James? Well, I think it's important to remember, for instance, in Australia, following up Mr. Lee's comments, the Australian Reserve Bank is busy trying to destroy the Australian economy. It's trying to clamp down on consumption, clamp down on expenditure. So this obviously flows through to demand across a whole range of areas. So the China economy is still integrated with the global economy. And the impacts that have been taken in the UK, in Europe, uh, Australia and elsewhere to reduce demand inevitably flee through to China. Big question is, of course, is how can we stimulate domestic demand in China to substitute for that fall off in export demand? And that sits at the core of the dual circulation policies that were announced pre-COVID. Mm, James. Yes, I fully agree with that. But I also would like to bring us back up a level and say, you know, I'm sitting here with William in the United States and the US and China are arguably uh, the two most important countries for the moment occupying our, our planet. You talked a little about earlier, you lamented how exports were going down to the US. We understand the technical reasons behind that. I think it's important that we swiftly follow up at a political um, and policy level to ensure that we have a foundation in place that is an environment where there's greater trust, greater transparency, greater willingness to talk about issues that are, are blocking some of the advances that could be made. So when we talk about these technical questions, I think it's really important. You asked if it was a short-term blip. Well, a lot of smarter people than I are are going to be able to predict the future of, of, of trade and flows and, and the markets. But if we don't get back to a place where, it, where China is engaged at a meaningful level um, with the United States particularly and talking about the issues that are impacting us, it's going to be all that much tougher. Absolutely. Mr. Lee, you wanted to add something just now? Well, I, I think what uh, James was just talking about, this um, trade dispute that the Chinese and, and the United States is having, it has to do with the role of supply chains and the need for national security to duplicate supply chains and to be able to have multiple sources. And I think that theme is something that has come out of the post-COVID environment that's become very strong mm. on top of what was there before. And I agree that the tariff and other semiconductor uh, uh, restriction and investment restrictions that the United States has put on are not, uh, I think, in, in the spirit of trying to 
form the new framework for trade for the 21st century. But those are the terms of negotiation that have to be put in place uh, before we can have a really settled global economy. Well, I think that leads to two points. First of all, yeah, sorry. First of all, is a slower economic growth in China good for the United States or bad for the United States, right? This is one thing. And secondly, how much of a negative effect has the U.S.'s sanctions on Chinese individuals and enterprises, increasing level of sanctions, and this latest executive order prohibiting or restricting U.S. investments in Chinese entities in three sectors, semiconductors, uh, microelectronics, quantum information technology, and certain artificial intelligence systems, how much are these impacting China's uh, economic growth? And in return, how much is that going to hurt the U.S. economy? In terms of the latest uh, U.S. Uh, investment restrictions, China has been really self-sufficient in exactly these areas of quantum computing, semiconductors, because that was part of the Xi Jinping's plan you know, made in China 2025 to become global standard setters in these new areas. So, so 80% of the financing for this work in China is Chinese financing. And very little of, of I think, the U.S. restrictions will have, will have very little effect on limiting what China can do. Mm. I think one of the things that we have to realize is that China is a leader in a lot of the uh, high-tech leading-edge uh, technologies like uh, you know, facial recognition and artificial intelligence and, and quantum computing already. And so I think one of the things that the United States is trying to do is really play a game of catch-up and trying to redirect a lot of our investment into our own uh, uh, work in the same area. I see. Daryl, your take? I think it goes beyond trying to play catch-up. To use a football uh, analogy, they're running ahead, but the hand is out behind them, stopping China from advancing. And we can't discount the impact that this is going to have on Chinese economy and Chinese development. America is, for all intents and purposes, trying to undermine China's advances across the board in terms of particularly its developments around technology, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and so on. The objective there is not to outcompete. That would be fair enough. The objective there is to to hobble, to disable, to make it more difficult. That's not competition. So we have to take that into account when we're considering how China's economy is likely to develop in the future. The key danger going forward is a bifurcation in the economy. In other words, a set of standards that, for want of a better word, American, and a set of standards which are Chinese. So the key factor in developing a digital economy, where no matter where you are, is which set of standards you're going to adhere to. So although in the short term, we're looking at some economic figures, in the long term, this is where the real battlefield is going to be. What is going to be the standards that are applied to the global digital economy development? The China standards are the most effective. That's a much Could higher level. Yeah, James, James, yes. So I'd just like to sort of respond a little bit to the word sort of like undermine, which is a, a very loaded word. I think that what it is more, these sanctions are really more emblematic of the state of the relationship than they are directional. So if you look at the specific sanctions and things that have been put in place, I personally believe they're very unlikely to have broad scale impact based on the nature of what the sanctions and the order say. What's really worrisome to me is that they're emblematic of the state of affairs and state of relationship. And they're basically saying, you know, America is not trusting. We're very nervous and concerned about depending on China as a partner. To me, this is the most worrisome part of it because that needs to be fixed. 
So I think sometimes the language gets、uh, misunderstood, and my own perception of it is very deep mis- unease.、Mm-hmm. And how do we know? And I think that partly comes from a lack of transparency in the way that China communicates to the West. And therefore, it makes it very right and easy to misunderstand things. Well, in in short, James is basically saying we have to do a better job、uh, making ourselves clear. And I take that. <laughs> I think you're not too far off there. That's why I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm using a different language, trying to have an informative discussion. Not always successful, but I'm trying. Let's come back to the economy.、Um, What is the outlook for the remaining five months of this year? Are things going to slow even further, or are things going to come back slightly to normal? I think、um, the numbers that are in the United States are showing that the U.S. economy is growing extraordinarily strongly. The latest estimate for the third quarter GDP right now is close to five percent. Adjusted for inflation, so the U.S. economy is really doing quite strong, which means that we'll be importing a lot of stuff.、Uh, the question is, will it be Chinese stuff or just other stuff? And I think for the Chinese economy, we're very hopeful that the fiscal stimulus can be put in place, and the the themes that we talked about for inspiring the private sector will take hold.、Mm. Because I think one of the things that Chinese economy really needs more than anything else is to bolster confidence in its own population that its property wealth is secure、mm. and its its family. Income is secure, and job security is something that is overwhelmingly in place.、Mm-hmm. I think that once that is in, is there, you'll see that the Chinese economy will have a very strong dynamic going forward. Yeah, and I think when we have two strong economies,、uh, that's good for everyone. That's、okay. good for the whole world. Yeah, Daryl, your prediction? I'm always wary of predictions, but I certainly see the Chinese economy continuing to、uh, to strengthen. Are we going to hit the five percent target? I think we will be coming very close to that sort of level. Uh, moving forward into the remainder of this year, we prefer to see competition because that's good for all parties on both sides of the the buying and selling, the importing and exporting equation. James, I'm a bull. I have I believe that、uh, China will grow in a responsible and powerful way. At the same time, there are bound to be hiccups. There's going to be challenges that need to be addressed, and we're going to all be watching to see how China does and addresses that. But in the long term, I'm betting on China's future. Thank you so much for the confidence in the Chinese economy. It's a it's a tough job. 1.4 billion people in transition from quantity to quality. We have a lot to do, but many thanks to my guests who have been very unbiased in my eyes and very informative.、Uh, William Lee, chief economist at nonprofit think tank Milken Institute; Daryl Guppy, financial market analyst from Australia; and James Heimowitz, honorary chair of the China Institute in America, the oldest nonprofit、uh, cultural organization in the U- U.S. to focus exclusively on China. And with that, we come to the end of this edition of the Point with me, Li Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Li Xin in Beijing. You've got the point. <laughs>